Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. This episode features one of three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island where it has broadcast continuously for over 15 years. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at tracyhotchnerpets.com. This show would not be possible without the longtime support of Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food, remaining privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards. This show is also made possible with the generous support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. Dr. Elsie's is also the founding and continuing sponsor of my New York Cat Film Festival of which I am the founder and director along with the annual New York Dog Film Festival, which premiere in New York City every October and then travel the USA and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. Go to dogfilmfestival.com and catfilmfestival.com to find out when we'll be where. What a pleasure it is to have Paula Mounier back on the show. She has another Mercy Car mystery. These mysteries involve... Mercy and her dog, Elvis, and he's on every page, which is pretty marvelously rare for mysteries that claim to be canine oriented. And then you like read chapters like what happened to the dog? These dogs are there all the time. And Susie Bear, who's a newfie home at night. Paula, you really have genuinely outdone yourself. This book is so rich and has so many plot threads and so many characters and so much going on and it's really scary as well as mysterious so congratulations you really you really did an amazing job oh well thank you so much and thank you for having me on the show it's always lovely to talk to you and to talk mysteries and books and dogs yes which you do all of them together this one of course selfishly for me was riveting because it's set in vermont and it has all this information about vermont hunting rules and laws and what you can shoot when where and how and you're a new hampshire lady and you're very involved in new hampshire with the natural resources you're a natural resources steward which sounds great i didn't even know there were stewards although we need more of those, don't we, for our natural resources. Why did you pick Absolutely. Vermont instead of New Hampshire? Because Vermont is just like famous as the kind of snowy deer hunting place or what? Well, you know, when I started writing the series, I was living in Massachusetts and Vermont was my happy place. I never dreamed I'd end up in New Hampshire, which I did. And of course, now everyone in New Hampshire asks me why the books aren't oh, that's in New funny. Hampshire. <laughs> They're like, I don't, we don't understand. But, you know, I love Vermont and I've gotten very 
um, involved with the Vermont Canine Association, the police association that, that runs the, the canines and their really? officers. And, and I go to the, my husband and I, la, we, last year we had the pleasure of going to the Vermont Canine Police Association Ball. Wow. It was so much yeah, it was so much fun. We got to meet all these handlers. So we sat at a table and there was a, a, a fire, you know, a firefighter and his arson sniffing dog. No. And yes. And there was a, a you know, a, a, a police officer. There was his drug sniffing dog and there was a game warden there with their, you know, their no dogs kidding. and search and rescue. Yes. And that's the glory of writing these books. Is I get to meet these people and their dogs. And it's just such a wonderful thing what people and dogs can do together. Well, I will say it it proves like very clearly why this book has such a, a clear bell of veracity. I mean, it, it rings so true. So either I thought you are a great researcher, which you are, and a fact checker and a fact includer, but also you you now, it turns out, have personal relationships with some of these human and canine teams, which makes it even more real, although the Mercy Car relationship with Elvis has always been really genuine. It wasn't just like, okay, I want to write a mystery, and I guess dogs are a good thing to include. I, I want to say <laughs> I think you started with dogs and became a mystery writer after. Or how did that work? Because the book is just so full of the relationship of people and their dogs and giving voice to the dogs in terms of identifying maybe why they did or didn't do something. Well, you know, the first thing... I one of the first books I wrote was a was a memoir called Fixing Freddy, a true story about a boy, a, a mom, and a very, very bad beagle. And I didn't about, realize that. <laughs> yes, it's about our, our dog, Freddy, who was honestly the worst possible dog ever and just gave me <laughs> such fits. And so I had this, I was a single mom. I had this unruly teenager and this unruly dog. And it was about me learning to be, you know, the leader of the pack. And all the lessons I had to learn. And nice. at the time, I, ironically, I was an acquisitions editor and I was editing no. a lot of dog training books. No. And so I, I was trying to use these books to help train this dog. And we went through everything possible. We took obedience training. He had puppy Prozac. He had his own shrink. The dog was just, <laughs> if you've ever had a beagle, beagles are just the most stubborn. They're adorable, but they're stubborn. They're determined yeah, because they're meant to yeah. go out and chase <laughs> rabbits. That's their job. Exactly. And so anyway, that, so that sort of got me writing about dogs. And I've always had dogs. My dad had dogs. You know, we grew up with dogs. And so uh, it, it seemed natural that if I was going to write a series, I'd have to have dogs in it because I have dogs in my life. And they're, right. you know, they're in the they're here all the time. It's not like they go away. You know, they're part Correct. of everyday life moment yes. to moment. And, and I, I guess, Paula, that's one of the things that I most enjoyed about the book, although the, the mystery is, is powerful and it's got some supernatural and it's, it's at Halloween and it, it's spooky and it's a spooky kind of house that may or may not have ghosts or stories that are hidden in it or things that everyone wants that are hidden in it, but we don't know what those things are or what they mean. It's really, it's very diverting that way. But what I really love was the way the dogs are woven into beside the couch or on the walk or behind the tree. They're just there all the time. And I think for those of us whose dogs are woven into our lives, it makes it even more genuine because the dogs don't just come into the story when we need to catch the bad guy. They're there all the time and being ready to catch the bad guy and follow instructions from their master about how to do that. It just becomes seamless. It just becomes 
part of what that relationship is like. And I, I think that's what you already know and have seen in real life with working dogs and their handlers. They're just sort of always together. Did the dogs get to go to the ball, by the way? <laughs> no, the dogs didn't go to the ball only, you know, it was an invitation only. So the dogs were all working dogs, but they were fabulous. You know, it, it, I always love meeting these dogs and they always give away a set of my books, you know, it, as part of their raffle oh, to nice. raise money. Yes, it's always nice. And and they've been so supportive, the game warden service and the l- local law enforcement and the um, canine people. They've been so open and generous with their time and helping me get try to get it right. I mean, any mistakes I make are mine alone because they have been such a help to me. Well, I mean, I can see that they would love your books because they glorify in a genuine, natural way. They glorify what these dogs can do and what the handlers can ask them to do or tell them to stop doing for their own sake, right. their own safety, which which comes into the, the book quite a bit. There's a, there's a whole sequence where Elvis is threatened by a guy with a gun, and I was very nervous about that because did you ever talk to any real handler or was this completely your imagination? What would happen if a bad guy is training a gun on your precious, beloved, and very important, uh, valuable service dog or, or working dog? I mean, there's wh- how do you... There's nothing you could do. You can't, right? I mean, the guy has a gun. The gun is faster and more powerful than even the fastest, right. most dangerous dog. Right. It's tricky. And the laws vary, too, you know. Um, but certainly the dog is law enforcement. That's right. You know? And if the dog's a soldier, the dog's a soldier. And so they have, you know, you get to protect your soldiers and, you, and your partners. Yes. And so they do everything they can. It can be very tricky. And, you know, there are working dogs and police canine dogs who die every year. That's right. You know, as trying to save or take down a perp or trying to save their handler. You know, that happens. Yep. And there are also handlers who get shot trying to protect their dogs. Yes. I mean, you know, it's, yes. it's, it's a very tight alliance. And And you depict it just marvelously in the book. I picked out a passage for you to read that's that's later on in the book, but I just think it's such a dramatic scene and you bring it so to life. And it's when Mercy, um, a house, well, I'm going to let you set the scene, but an arsonist has put on fire this house that I referred to, this 150-year-old house that she has, it's it's, it's got a lot of complexity to it, the house does. So would you set the scene and then read? And Elvis, just to remind everyone, is her dog. And he, I guess sometimes what this shows is that a dog makes independent decisions. And they, I don't know what we can call them except for brave, because he put himself in great harm. And luckily, Mercy was able to uh, to make sure he didn't come to the ultimate harm. So will you set the scene and then read it? Sure, sure. Thank you. So in this scene, the house is on fire and there are people, she's trying to get the people out of the house and and Elvis, the dog, is trying to help her. And, you know, it's a very uh, dramatic scene because this is the house. She's been looking for a house and this is the house she's fallen in love with that she loves. It's full of secrets and maybe ghosts, but she's fallen in love with this house and now it's on fire and people she love are inside. So, She's trying to save the people, and Elvis is trying to help save her. So that's where we are. But let me just and say I, she does think she's gotten everybody out, right? 
Yes. Yes, so that's important. The people, two elderly people that she had to get out, she has put herself in jeopardy to get them out. And she doesn't know where Elvis is or why he hasn't come out. Right. So, and, and that often happens. And we'll talk yes. about that after yes. we, I read the, the passage. Okay. Um, okay. So Mercy was pretty exhausted herself. She drew herself up and limped back into the house. She turned into the kitchen where the fire had yet to establish itself although she could see flames licking at the corners of one of the inside walls. It wouldn't be long before the world's ugliest kitchen was gone. She grabbed a towel, doused it with water, and held it over her nose and mouth. She searched the kitchen but found nothing and no one. She hobbled to the living room, where she found Lewis and Clark tied up and gagged. She untied them with trembling, blistering fingers, and together they all ducked down and lurched out of the room and into the hallway and out the front door, where the bodyguards fell to the ground, flanking Feinberg. The sound of sirens pealed through the trees, and Mercy nearly cried with relief. She still had not found Elvis, or Leontine's great-granddaughter. She couldn't save them unless she knew where they were. She looked up to the second floor and saw a man up there on the landing, wielding a fire extinguisher. It looked like Levi Beecher, although she couldn't be sure, as he wore a bandana over his mouth. She tried calling to him, but she couldn't make a sound. She tried whistling for Elvis. Nothing came out but a tortured squeak. Her pack was upstairs somewhere in the blaze, but she did have her cell. She texted Troy as she squeaked Elvis's name over and over again. She dragged herself to her feet. She'd go around the house. Maybe she'd see something by looking in rather than looking out. She tottered down the gravel path, cursing with every footfall, clapping for Elvis with her blistered hands. She heard the barking before she saw the shepherd come barreling out of the back garden. Elvis. She fell to her knees to hug him, and he stopped long enough to lick her nose and blazed past her toward the front of the house. She launched herself back upright and reeled after him. She saw him on the front step. He barked at her and then bounded into the house, the house on fire. Where are you going? Mercy pulled the wet towel back over her face and went into the house. She glanced up the stairs, but Levi or whoever, was gone. Elvis! She could hear his high-pitched yelping. It was coming from the kitchen. She couldn't imagine what the dog was doing in there. She'd checked that room already. Always trust your dog. Mercy plunged into the kitchen. She looked around for Elvis, but she didn't see him. Elvis! She tried to shout, but her weakened voice was swallowed by the smoke. The fire had reached the kitchen. The barking had stopped. Among the whining and whooshing of the fire and the crackling and crankling of the kitchen under siege, she heard a terrible banging and realized it was coming from the far corner of the room, the pantry. She stumbled over to the built-in closet. Elvis was there, lying at the foot of the pantry, whining. He lumbered to his feet. Mercy knew that he was suffering from smoke inhalation. Go, she told him but he only moved as far as her side. Mercy reached up and unlocked the door. She opened it, and Dr. Santee fell into her arms. Go, she told Elvis again, and this time he led the way. Mercy half carried the distraught woman out of the kitchen, into the foyer, and out of the entrance. She careened down the front steps and across the gravel path to the raised beds in the front garden, where she fell down on a patch of lavender, taking her visitor from the south of France with her. Mercy held the woman against her chest as she sobbed. Elvis curled up at her hip, and she stroked his ash-streaked fur. 
Looking up, she saw Levi slip into the burning kitchen. It may have been the world's ugliest kitchen, but it was her kitchen. And she cried. That was so great. I mean, it really gives a sense of your style and the style of this book and how things move along. And there's many people with different storylines and all of them come together. You wanted, in the minute or so we have left, is that enough time for you to say what you wanted to say about the scene after? Well, I just wanted to say that, you know, this scene really shows that dogs are often smarter than people. Yes. Yes. And now Elvis knew she was in there. They have a set of tools that we do not have. Yes. Their sense of scent, hearing, scent, everything. And they often know, you know, they say that dogs read each other's body language and our body language six times faster than we can. Wow. It doesn't so surprise me. So we're way me. behind. Yeah. We are way behind. And we, we're often amazed when we think they've done ESP with us, but they've just picked up all these clues and hints of how we're dressed or what shoes we have on. I mean, those of us that live with our dogs with us constantly, every time I go upstairs to change, whether it's for pickleball or to take them for a walk or to put on comfy clothes to write in, the dogs come over and they check out my clothes and my shoes. Oh, okay, that's what you're going to do. Oh, darn, I, you're going to go do this thing without me. It is amazing. Exactly. They definitely, they have a lot more information and Elvis and Mercy have an extraordinary relationship. I hope this book becomes a book club favorite because I think that it's something that a book club would particularly enjoy because there are so many oh, interweaving mysteries. So I hope that those of you with book clubs will definitely get Paula Mounier's newest book, Home at Night. Enjoy it yourselves and together. And those of you that don't have a dog as smart as Elvis, just remember all of our dogs are smart. We have to just give them more of a chance. Just before finishing, Paula, what dog do you have now? Well, you know, we have a Malinois like Elvis called Blondie. She's wonderful, and she's insanely wicked smart, the smartest dog we've ever had. Yes. We have a Newfoundland retriever mix named Bear. He's the patriarch. Yep. We have a great Pyrenees mix named wow. Liz, and we have a new, new full-blooded Newfoundland puppy. Oh, my God. This is hundreds of pounds of dogs this woman has. Yeah. I mean, just think yeah. of it in the size of the weight, not just the slobber. Newfies are yeah. amazing, and Susie Bear is a great character in your books. Paula Mounier, you've done another wonderful job, and if anybody doubts that this woman is a dog person, did you count on all the fingers of one hand how many gigantic dogs are in that household? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Paula, congratulations yeah. again. It's such a pleasure to read you and to speak to you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed the show. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible, and I hope you'll try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. This show is supported by Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative dog chew, No Hide, and the hybrid dry food, Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky Weimaraner Maisie will eat. The show is also brought to you in part by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human edible, ethically sourced ingredients to gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. 
They founded and run their own company and answer to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. My dogs love it every single day.